welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Hey, if you're watching the video, you are a Counterpunch Plus subscriber, and we are ever so grateful for that support. If you're listening to the free podcast, well, now is the time to consider getting that Counterpunch Plus subscription. There's so much extra content there. You go to Counterpunch every single day. You see tons of articles, but there's so much more that you're missing uh, in Counterpunch Plus. So get yourself a subscription, support Counterpunch that way. This media project has been going for nearly 30 years, and we plan to have many more years in the future. Uh, we recently had a fun drive. Thank you again to everybody who supported us and supported this work and really supports grassroots media. We need that on the left as these spaces are shrinking seemingly every day. And uh, of course, one of the great perks of doing this show is that I get to chat with a lot of interesting people, and I have another interesting journalist to chat with today, somebody whose work is incredibly important. So let me just introduce her right now. Jacqueline Keeler is with us. Uh, Jacqueline is a journalist. She is an author of a very important book, actually a couple of important books that she was involved in. The first I would nod to is Standoff, Standing Rock, The Bundy Movement, and The American Story of Sacred Lands. Absolutely critical read. I would highly recommend you get that. Uh, we're recording before Christmas, so if you're listening to this, get that Christmas gift, uh, and preferably from an independent book seller if you can. Um, also, I would recommend her other book that she edited, Edge of Morning: Native Voices Speak for the Bears Ears. Again, critical collection. Please do consider getting a copy of that one as well. Jacqueline Keeler, welcome to Counterpunch. Thank you for having me. Thank you for all of your great work and for giving me some time tonight because there's so much important uh, information that we need to cover. So let's just jump right into it. I want to begin by giving you a chance to introduce yourself to our audience, some of whom I'm sure already know your work, but many of whom probably don't. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, about your background, what brought you to the work that you're doing, and uh, how did you get into all of this? Yeah, um, well, I'm a journalist primarily and also an author and uh, and I guess I just, uh, I'd always had an interest in telling, uh, native stories, native perspectives. I am myself, uh, a citizen of the Navajo nation. My mother is Navajo and my father, uh, is Yankton Sioux, uh, uh, Dakota. And, uh, so I, uh, both sides of my family are both native and, um, and just trying to make sense of our situation has always been my focus. And, uh, and then, um, so that's why I write is to help do that. I think there are, are, we have few resources as indigenous people to come to terms with um, our history. Our stories are not told generally or understood. I mean, I can't tell you how many people tell me that I'm the first native person they've ever met or say things like they didn't know we were still around, all these things. And um, and so it's sort of, uh, it makes it <laughs> sort of shocking actually to be told that, but it, it makes it really clear that um, for, our, I mean, I think that for a lot of a lot of uh, you know white people they don't understand that experience of being completely like invisible. <laughs> uh, I often when I when I talked about the mascot issue, people would um, you know kind of try to explain what it meant to have just these sort of stereotypical uh, representations, and, um, and 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 people would say, well, what about the Vikings? You know, like the what aboutism sort of thing, and the really difference between the Viking stereotype, the Viking stereotypes, and that of that's promoted by uh, a, a masketry of indigenous people is that that's not the only way that white men are seen, right? If that, that was the case, if you never saw a white man 
you know, uh, ever, except as a Viking, right? You, you never saw them in a Hollywood movie saving the world. You never saw them anchoring the evening news. You never saw them ever. You, you go into a bookstore like Powell's bookstore here in Portland, where I live, and out of all the thousands of books they have there, maybe three are from the perspective of a white man. <laughs> and, and how many of those are from a white man like you? I mean, this is our actual situation, our actual lived experiences. I mean, how many novels are written from the perspective of a Native woman like myself, you know, with, with the protagonist being a Native woman who is college educated and from two to, you know, it just, it just doesn't exist, I would say, you know. And um, so it's it's the, the level of marginalization of Native people is is extreme. And to be a Native person who lives in such a situation requires, I don't know, I, I felt like it really requires um, for us to do the work and, and the work I do is is for for um, for all Native people. So. It sounds like you're talking about something more than just representation, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, uh, so with uh, eradicating offensive Native masketry, I got involved with that in 2013, uh, myself and um, several other Native parents. And uh, and we, um, we really focused on the Washington um, pro football team. And uh, and other um, teams as well. My I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. My parents met there through a program called Relocation, which was um, an initiative uh, by Congress in the mid twentieth century to basically terminate tribes politically, and then to relocate the young people to urban centers like Cleveland was a Cleveland was a relocation center. So my parents as young people, this went on from the late fifties to the early seventies, and you know they. Um, young people between the ages of 18 and 30 on the reservation could go on these, these programs. And um, so my parents met in Cleveland. Uh, at the time, there were, I don't know, about 20,000 young Native people there. Uh, it was probably the most Native people in Cleveland since uh, Tecumseh lost, you know. And um, so uh, so that's where they met. And that, So I'm a product of the, these sorts of policies to, uh, to basically, um, you know, finish us off politically. And... Um, and so when I worked on the mascot issue, I was, you know, I was part of the team that uh, created and, and trended the hashtag NotYourMascot that was actually created by eradicating offensive Native masketry. And masketry is a term that I kind of came up with because I, I think that sometimes when we say mascot, people would think of these very prosaic images of brave warriors and stuff. How could you be mad about that? But really, we're talking about masketry, which is what they do with it, right? All the red face and all the ridiculous things they do. And, um, and so masketry to me was sort of a term that was, I don't know, <laughs> akin to like minstrelsy, you know, like sort of this, this active thing they're doing with it. And so, um, but, uh, but yeah, once we were working on that as a group, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I started to realize that I started wondering why is it our identity is so assumable, right? Why can people just take it? And, um, and of course, some, you know, I think Suzanne Harjo had a great essay where she described it as akin to sort of um, scalps or like, you know, these are sort of trophies of war, right? These are the victors who get to take what they want, right? And um, the more I thought about it, the more I felt, and why does it happen to Native people? You know, like, why are people, you know, the whole issue of red face, people even in their real lives trying to pretend to be us for jobs and, and you know, clout? And, um, but I, I suddenly realized that it really had to do with the power structure, the power structure of colonialism and occupation, which basically, uh, in order for the United States to exist, it has to deny our existence and also particularly our political 
existence as nations, as citizens of nations. So this, this sort of political cloudiness, this fuzziness around the edges of our identity is purposeful. It's the um, result of hundreds of years of US policy and before that colonial policy. Uh, the, uh, so I think that, so the, for me, this is sort of the crucial aspect um, is, is how do we then make our political outlines far more real, right? Because with our political outlines comes our rights to the land, uh, to our rights as, as these treaties we entered into our nation, our respective nations did. Um, and um, not to say these treaties were fair, <laughs> but they are the actual act of treating with us, like at, as we saw at Standing Rock with the, the, the um, Fort Laramie treaties, right? Which were ratified by the U.S. Senate, right, and um, um, with the Great Sioux Nation, and so uh, it's um, these treaties. And so, you know, the Senate uh, does not ratify treaties with anyone but sovereign nations. Under international law, treaties are only entered into with sovereign nations. And also, under international law, treaties are an act of sovereignty. They um, cannot be utilized to extinguish sovereignty. So often, Americans think that we signed these treaties and we disappeared. Right. This is the idea. Um, it is actually not the legal actual reality. And so treaties are a way in which tribes are utilizing today to basically um, to affirm their continued existence and to deny our erasure as political entities and nations in the world. And so I give this lecture <laughs> and the book Standoff sort of grew out of this lecture, which is um, that the title that, um, you know, America is still a colony. You know, uh, it calls itself a country, but it's really an ongoing occupation, right? As is Canada. And so, you know, it, these are other people's homelands, right? That, that are being occupied. And so I really, um, I saw Stan, Sandy Rock as a moment in which, you know, the militarized um, response, right? And, and, you know, to realize that pipeline north of the Standing Rock Sea Reservation was actually still an unceded treaty land. That, that whole Morton County area is occupied and held by the U.S. in violation of international law, ongoing violations that have going on since, you know, the 1860s. So the, uh, um, and it is a military occupation. And we, and what Standing Rock did is it made that military occupation visible, Indeed, I think that's a really great uh, point to make because it, it it is militarized, and I do want to talk about that in a second. Um, but, well, actually, you know what? Let me just talk about that right now since we brought it up. So let's talk a little bit about pipelines because this issue is so central to a lot of activism that has been done both by indigenous groups and also by those who uh, uh, position themselves as allies of indigenous people and, and of the tribes. So, um can you talk a little bit about this struggle I, without getting into all of the specifics about each and every front in this broader struggle? Let's talk about it at sort of the macro level. Um, how did this fight emerge and why is it important to understand at a, let's call it at a structural level? Why do we need to think of it in that way? Yeah. So, um, so when I, uh, before I started reporting on Standing Rock in 2016, uh, in 2000. 14 and 2013, I, I reported on the Keystone XL pipeline, right? And when I was out in the field, I talked to a lot of um, South Dakota ranchers and, and farmers in North Dakota and Nebraska, uh, ranchers and farmers, landowners, and, um, and, you know, some of the Republicans, but they were on the side, they were working in concert with the tribes to fight this pipeline. And, uh, and it was interesting <laughs> talking to these white um, farmers and ranchers and, um, 
And they were, uh, well, it was actually a rancher I was talking to, and he was completely stunned. He was like, he, you know, he's a Republican, and he just could not believe that the U.S. government had given the rights to, of eminent domain, governmental rights, to a Canadian company, TransCanada, right? And I remember looking at him, and I was thinking, don't you know the history of this country? And because I immediately thought of the fact that the colonies uh, were originally, um, many of them, uh, joint stock companies, the earliest ones, right? And those are early corporations, you know, uh, early modern era corporations. And um, basically the crown, um, I guess Queen Elizabeth I, right? She, uh, her, she could not afford to fund exploration and colonization out of her own funds. So she turned to her subjects and allowed them to create these joint stock companies so that they could share the risk and the profits. And in exchange, she gave them basically governmental powers <laughs> over our lands that they they held. So you look at the colony of Virginia, which was founded by the um, Virginia Company of Adventurers in, based in London. And, and it was a for-profit enterprise. And um, and, and, and and they were given, of course, you know, the, uh, of course, people make a big deal about the fact that well, I went to Virginia when I was writing this book, I was invited to um, speak at the College of William and Mary. And, uh, and all over Virginia, you'll, you'll see signs like Virginia's for lovers, Virginia's the birthplace of democracy, all this stuff. And I were thinking, well, Virginia, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's a corporate, ent- it was originally a corporate entity, the house um, of um, the, uh, the, uh, um, but it was, you know, their their legislature, and um, and so was the um, so was the Mayflower Compact. The people who signed it were all stockholders, you know. So the um, so I really think that uh, the corporate nature of this colonial occupation is is intrinsic to it, right? And um, and I also uh, can contrast that to um, this notion of land ownership, right? And of course, you know, a landowner in South Dakota or the the Bundys on their ideas of land ownership in Nevada and um, and also expressed here in Oregon when they occupied the Mount Here Wildlife Refuge. Uh, you know, I, I examined that pretty carefully in the book. I, um, I actually, uh, I decided to engage their claims, which of course have never held up in a court of law, uh, their claims of, um, of, uh, of, of the right to use the commons. And, and I began to look at some of the origins of the language they were using, particularly um, from the Revolutionary War and um, also from the English Civil War. And, uh, and I got a clue to this, uh, not just based on the fact that there were guys dressed up in Revolutionary War outfits uh, at Malheur, <laughs> but also because, um, because there was a sign in um, Clive and Bundy. Clive and Bundy was the father. Uh, he is a rancher in Bunkerville, Nevada. In 2014, he had a standoff with the Bureau of Land Management over his cattle grazing on um, on public lands, about half a million acres, uh, which he had not paid for for like 20 years. Right, and uh, I, re- I wrote about this for the Nation in 2014, and I did a comparison between Cliven's claims of ancestral rights to that of well, what was going on with the Keystone XL pipeline at the time, and the work of the unif- the work between uh, the sort of unified group of the Cowboys and Indians group in South Dakota and Nebraska to fight the Keystone XL, the Keystone pipeline and um, Keystone XL pipeline. Sorry. And, uh, but uh, he had a sign on the wall of his house and it said, what, remember what the name Bundy means. Right. And I was like, what does the name Bundy mean? It's such a strange surname. And, um, and I looked it up and the primary meaning 
is, uh, and, and I checked, he, you know, I think he was trying to go with more of a French meaning, but I looked at his family tree and they are from actually the area around Stonehenge. They go way back, you know, they're, um, they're Anglo-Saxon, you know, and uh, so they, uh, but the name Bundy actually comes from the name Bond, which, you know, James Bond, which means bondsman or bondswoman, right? And, um, and what they would do is they, under feudalism, under Anglo-Saxon feudalism, they would give their bond to a lord, right? And, and this lord would then give them land to farm. And, um, and you have to understand under feudal, feudalism, the only person who owns land is the, is the monarch, you know, and everyone else, the subjects, they only can use it because the monarch gives them the right, right? And, um, and so the people are essentially landless, right, under this system. And so, but what happened after William, uh, William the Conqueror and the Normans invaded in 1066 is that that Anglo-Saxon tradition became sort of de facto serfdom. Uh, the Bundys, when the Lord inherited the land, he inherited the Bundys. They were, so their relationship to the land is very different from that of indigenous people, right? Um, and I, I give a definition of a colonist, and then I also give a definition of an indigenous people. And um, my definition, and we kind of know what colonists are, you know, they go to other people's homelands, they occupy them, and they export the wealth to their ruling class. That's the colonist, right? And, um, but what is an indigenous person? Can you, can, and so I had to kind of find a similar kind of really simple, simplistic definition. And, um, and what I came upon was in, um, a, uh, um, I came upon one from a uh, written by my, my grandmother's cousin, Vine Deloria Jr. And he was a member of the Standing Rock Sioux tribe. He was a well-known historian and writer and professor. And he wrote um, sort of uh, the book, uh, Custer Died for Your Sins, an Indian Manifesto in 1969, and was sort of the um, Bible of our um, sort of red power movement in the 70s. And, um, and he has a definition of indigenous people, which is that a people, you know, the capital P, because indigenous people, we often call ourselves the people. Like my mother is, and the Navajos call themselves Diné, which means the real people. And um, a people have an origin story based in a meeting with a sacred being who is a manifestation of the land itself, right? And in this meeting, we, we, come, we are given sort of original instructions. We have you know, we, um, we don't come to land with this concept, these concepts of dominion, of sort of ownership, but we come as relatives, kinship, responsibility. So we are given, um, you know, responsibilities, we are given rights um, in this relationship um, as relatives with the land and with all the people who are already on the land. And this includes, you know, um, the animals and the plants. And so with my father's people, you know, for them, it was really the meeting with the white buffalo calf woman. When she came, she was a manifestation of the Great Plains itself, right? And these are specific areas. It's not the entire planet. It's a specific area. So we share the outcomes of that place, right? And so the, uh, when she came to us, she brought the pipe, the chamupa, right? And the pipe had, uh, the, the stem was not made of wood. It was made of the front calf leg bone of a, of a buffalo, Right. And so when we smoked that, you know, we made an agreement with her and also with the Buffalo Nation, the Tatanka Oyatewa. And so it's uh, this is how we this is the, the basis of our relationship to the land. And also our, our that's when we became Dakota, Lakota. And um, so my my Lala used to say and he grew up in Wakpala in Standing Rock, uh, my grandma's cousin. And he used to say, you know, we uh, we did not become you know, Lakota, until we met the white buffalo calf woman, 
Once we met her, then we became Lakota. Before that, we were something else entirely, right? So there's this notion of the land makes you a people, makes you who you are, and it's that relationship, right? And it's a very different relationship than the feudal one, where only one man, your relationship to land is mediated by a human being, right? And, and you yourself. And, and to this day, you know, um, I, I, and there was a book that came out a couple of years ago, and, uh, and they looked at sort of the land ownership in England today. And there was also in Scotland. And what they found was that 30% of the land in England is still owned outright by the descendants of William the Conqueror and his friends. And they estimate another 40% is probably owned by companies that they control, right? So, I mean, 70% of the land in England is still owned almost a thousand years later by this, this, this guy and his friends who invaded, right? And so... The British people, the English people, are still landless, as they were when they came here. And so, so when you look at these folks, you know, landowners in, in South Dakota or Nevada or Oregon making these claims that this gives them rights, they have to realize that those rights are fairly new for them and they are the spoils of colonialism, right? Agreement, agreements made through colonialism. And so um, so it's um so I think. What I try to do is examine things and, and then to change the parameters and maybe provide a more accurate analysis that helps us come to conclusions and, and solutions. Well, and to your point, the point you were just making about the relationship to the land, I mean, that's, you know, the idea of a water protector is not some branding exercise. It has both a political context, but also a spiritual and historical context as well. It's not just a sort of a role that you're play acting as for the purposes of activism, right? It has a very deep spiritual connotation as does, uh, you know, fire and, 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 and other things like that. I know just in my very, very, very cursory uh, exposure to these things, you know, water protectors, women, mother, maternity. I mean, these things are all kind of connected, aren't they? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think, um, but I think it's it's also equally important that, um, that uh, European based societies like English, um, you know, um, English colonists reassess who and what they are, because what they tell themselves is not accurate. And then it makes it impossible to create change, right? Um, another example of this would be uh, the interpretation of the Revolutionary War. Right. Uh, the because um, uh, I, I address this because the Bundys kept bringing up these sorts of things like um, from the Revolutionary War, like, uh, you know, um, no taxation without you know representation. They carried all those little pocket uh, um, constitutions in their front pocket and everything. And um, those Skusin constitutions. And um, and it's uh, so I looked at that very closely. And what I found was interesting. Uh, um, so George Washington, you know, uh, was a very young man, um, in, in before in the French and Indian war, uh, he actually, and, and, uh, historians believe that he actually started the war and, and historians call the French and Indian war, the, uh, world war zero. It was the first world war. And, um, and so, and it was actually started over the lust for land of Indian land by the colonists, right? Uh, George Washington was in his, he was like 20 years old. He was very young. And he was um, sent by Virginia, um, the House of Burgesses, to lead a militia group to challenge the French. The, um, at the time, um, you know, a lot of the colonies, uh, you know, like Connecticut and 
um, Virginia, they they claimed, um, according to their charters with the crown, they claimed land all the way to the Pacific Ocean, right? So they viewed the Ohio Valley, Virginia did as part of their claim, right? And um, and so the French were building forts along the Ohio River to sort of firm up their own claim. And so when George Washington came in, this very young man, um, with his militia and with his Indian allies, uh, came in, um, he created an international um, situation. Uh, according to him, one of his Indian allies murdered uh, a French diplomat. According to the French, who made him sign a letter in French, uh, George Washington took res took responsibility for killing this French diplomat. And this was an international, uh, you know, um, scandal. And so it, it basically started the French, uh, the French Indian War, what we call it here, but in Europe, which they call the Seven Years War, right? And this war was fought, you know, because the colonists were wanting to get more and more Indian land. Um, the uh, It doubled the national debt of both Britain and France. And after the war was settled, uh, the uh, to stop this from happening again, the uh, the British agreed and King George III um, issued the proclamation line of 1763, which went along the Appalachian Mountains and said that the colonists could not go past that line. And when you read the um, Declaration of Independence, most of the bullet items in there have to do with this this this, this decision, right? Um, you, you you know, King George III has set upon his evil, you know, merciless Indian savages. This is all about the Proclamation Line of 1763, right? Which then closed um, most of New York State and Pennsylvania, you know, all these places that we think of as part of the colonies um, were not actually part of the colonies. This was Indian land. Um, you know, most New York State was pretty much uh, the Iroquois Confederacy, which had stood for a thousand years. Right. This is my husband's people. And, and my husband is actually a direct descendant of Chief Joseph Brown, who led the who led the fight against the Americans trying to invade their lands. And um, but anyway, so so this uh, so the settlement quite angered the colonists and and um, and they, they had basically ch um, taxed their homeland. To, to because of their interest in more their their lust for Indian land, right? Had taxed their homeland. Their homeland was people in England were having to pay taxes to pay for this war. The uh, colonial um, governments refused to to levy taxes on their populace, and so that's why King George III was doing the Stamp Act, doing these other ways of trying to tax them to pay for the war they started, right? And the whole thing of quartering soldiers was because, to prevent them from to keep them out of Indian land. Do you mean? And so there's this whole notion, this whole aspect of which our understanding of the Revolutionary War is largely propaganda, right? And and it, and it really um, sort of uh, excludes the real issue of the taking of Indian land uh, and the cost of that, which they were then just sending it back home to their homeland, right? And so, uh, so, this is, uh, so, so this is sort of, so I think it really provides a different you know, and I see the, the Revolutionary War as actually a fight between elites on either side of the Atlantic and um, the colonial elites here. And, you know, George Washington was um, all these founding fathers were members of land companies. Right. Um, you know, George Washington was invested in the Ohio Land Company. You know, one of the um, what's his name? Morristown, Morristown. He was one of the uh, wealthiest men in the colony. I mean, if you look at read the bios of all these founding fathers, they're all the wealthiest men of their era. You know, and, you know, he got like. Uh, he got like a third of the Iroquois Confederacy in the end. You know, he got to take a third of New upstate New York. Um, they 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 got their land. They got all the things they wanted, and they got it. You know, fairly cheaply. Um, 
And, um, and so I think it's, um, I think understanding, I think we need to, you know, create, so if we understand the revolutionary war this way, it really changes what we think we can do about it or what rights it gives Americans, particularly Americans like the Bundys. Such an important point. And before we go to the break, I want to just touch on one other issue that is tangentially, well, it's related to everything we're talking about, but it is related to what you were saying, the taking of land and and understanding it in that way, the taking of land. Uh, There is a really painful and awful parallel, and that is the taking of human beings, the taking of children, the disappearance of generations of indigenous children. And this is, of course, in the headlines today because of uh, the unearthing of remains and I think at least several sites in the in the last couple of months and probably more to come. Um, can you talk a little bit about the uh, the mass graves, the discovery of these mass graves? And more importantly, I mean, that's a that's shocking in and of itself, but what it tells us about the legacy and specifically about genocide and what genocide looks like, because it's not just, you know, uh, six million Jews being marched into a gas chamber. It's something that takes place over a long period of time and often sort of not entirely in plain sight. So tell us a little bit about this issue uh, and also sort of this context of understanding it in the way that you were just describing. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm actually working on an assignment from a Canadian magazine and, um, and it's actually looking at the issue of these mass graves that are being found in residential schools in Canada, right? There's been, I think, almost um, well over a thousand um, graves found, and um, I think almost fifteen hundred. And um, and I um, I'm focusing on the Mohawk Institute in Canada in Ontario, uh, which actually members of my husband's family um, went there, and. Uh, and uh, and it's his reserve, the Six Nations Reserve in Canada, which are, is leading sort of they they um they control the institute now the buildings and they're trying to um they're doing the, they're leading the search for more bodies and um and also um they're actually also re um, rehabilitating this they're turning it into a um, sort of a place where a memorial to them and also a community center um, and um and it's been. I mean, I just spent an hour today going through the whole story with my editor, and it's just, it's very heavy, you know, and listening to all the testimony. And, and for my husband, it was quite emotional because he, he made him understand more where his grandparents were coming from, you know, the, the, the trauma they went through as small children. Um, and, and it's just, just disgusting to, to hear the stories. I mean, these, the, um, you know, these folks were star. I mean, this is, you know, the Iroquois, um, my husband is a descendant of Chief Joseph Brandt, um, and and they were um, sort of called derisively Brandt Mohawks, right? And um, and they um, he was the, the, um, the Revolutionary War split the Confederacy, uh, the Iroquois Confederacy, as I mentioned before, stood for a thousand years. It originally consisted of five nations, and then Tuscarora joined them once their homeland was taken over, and they came and um, and um, and so these uh, these six nations. Um, were you know in upstate New York, and um, and they they um, they were split. Some of them joined the Americans, and then um, the group led by my husband's ancestor, uh, you know, they fought against the Americans to protect their homeland, and and they lost, right? And uh, and they lived in what is now called what was called the Mohawk Valley, right? They had these castles there and everything. And so when the British negotiated the treaty, they sold them out. They didn't consult them. They went and you know just let the Americans have their land. And so um, when uh, when uh, Joseph, um, Joseph Brandt, Chief 
Chief Joseph Brandt, when he uh, complained, uh, he was then given what they call the Haldeman Tract in, or in, in Ontario, right? Which is like, it goes along on the other side, um, I think about so many kilometers on the other side of the Grand River in Ontario. Basically, it's like a circle's Toronto, basically, a half circle around Toronto, semicircle of land. And, um, and, but they've lost most of it. Now they just have a small little section of that left, which is the Six Nations Reserve on the Grand River. And um, so he, uh, so, but after all this happened to them and they had to, you know, lost their homeland in New York state and they, they had to go here. And uh, then uh, this Mohawk Institute was established, I think around 1830, I think. And, um, and, uh, and then, you know, there the children were taken and they were um, forcibly Christianized. They were uh, not allowed to speak their language. They were starved. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the survivors today uh, who are very elderly people in their 70s and 80s, um, you know, they talk about not having enough food to eat. They called it um, the mush, I think the mush hole, because <laughs> there was just mush to eat. And, and you know, I think about, you know, when I visited my husband's reserve, it's, it's this gorgeous sort of New England looking place. Yet the minute you cross the boundary, it's just tracked housing all the way, you know, <laughs> from there on. And, um, but it's, uh, you know, they, my, you know, my in-laws talk about how, you know, they, they, they were farmers, they grew, they had lots of food to eat, but when they send their children to this school, their children are living in starvation situations. Do you know I mean? And, um, and it's just terrific to think that, you know, these are very small children, like six years old, right. And, um, being unloved, being treated, you know, they were talking about having to hold out their hands and having them smacked, right. Like that. And, and just ways in which, you know, Indian people, most Indian people don't practice, physical, um, traditionally speaking, of course, after the boarding school and residential school experiences, it's different now. But traditionally, they didn't um, use physical abuse. It was unknown, right? And um, uh, it was thought that through example, uh, you could train children. And my, my great aunt, um, Ella Deloria, she, she's a, she was an ethnologist and linguist. She studied under Franz Boas at Columbia University. And um, you know, she spent her life documenting these traditions in our own Lakota and Dakota cultures. And um, they had just a different system of raising children. And um, it was a very effective system, too. And it was destroyed by these schools. And our children came out broken. You know, they were also raped, molested. And um, and so the people we are today, you know, if you go to Seattle now and you see pe Indian people on the streets, it's because of this system that broke them. You know, uh, and then it becomes intergenerational, the trauma, you know, it, they take it home with them. Right. And uh, so it's um, and I, I feel like my 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 family, my dad's family and my mother's family, that the reason we we were lucky, we were never in these Catholic run schools, although the M M Mohawk Institute was Anglican, it wasn't Catholic. But most of the schools, particularly in Canada, um, like three quarters of them uh, were run by the Catholic Church. And, uh, and the Catholic Church is now refusing to turn over any sort of documentation they have about what happened there. A lot of it was shredded for some bizarre reason for to recycle paper. I don't know. It's bizarre. And um, and uh, so it's um, and the Pope is, um, has has um, Pope Francis has agreed to um, give an audience to um, some of the survivors. They had to postpone that because of the um, the Omicron um, variant. But uh but I we don't I don't think that's going to lead to any opening of records. Um, and uh, the Canadian government has just recently agreed to um, give forty billion dollars Canadian, I think about thirty billion American dollars, uh, to sort of um, to um, give um, you know restitution to survivors. 
and also to begin to hand over the social welfare programs for Native, uh, for First Nations children to their respective um, bands and nations. And so um, that whole process. Um, and um, But yeah, my, the focus of my article is going to be on how the Six Nations people are basically taking control of this narrative, are also taking a lead in the criminal investigation um, and um, and, and and sort of their ownership of it and and, and of this really painful history. And, you know, I, and when I married my husband, I met his grandmother. His grandfather already was deceased. His grandfather was the Mohawk Bear Clan chief at Six Nations. And his grandmother, um, her father was the pine tree chief of the Seneca Nation there. Um, the Six Nations includes the Mohawk, Seneca, Onondaga, Cayuga, and Oneida. And then Tuscarora was the sixth. And... Um, and also some Delaware, Lenape as well joined them. And, um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, um, you know, I, I can see what he means by that. You could see, you know, that they're carrying pain, you know, and, and you don't know why. And, and, um, but when you see what happened to them, you understand what happened to them as children and suddenly you, it makes sense. You know what happened, even if they are high functioning adults, um, you know what happened and, and that sort of trauma and, and damage, you know, that's, I mean, you know, the occupation of our lands takes many forms and, and, and the arrogance um, takes many forms. And, uh, and so it's, um, you know, that's what they did. I mean, obviously, sexual abuse also occurs in, you know, very um, expensive, uh, prominent elite boarding schools as well, you know, um, but, um, but it, it, it was um, even more traumatic when it's laced with, um, you know, um, implicit uh, inferiority um, of a people. And, you know, the Six Nations, Iroquois people, they were the most powerful people there um, on um, in, in the Eastern Seaboard. The, you know, they were the nation that really held the colonists at bay, you know, kept that line there along the Appalachian Mountains, you know, up into the Revolutionary War and um, uh, playing the English against the French and all this stuff. And, and, um, and for them to have them to be reduced to this level is, um, it's just shocking, you know, and, and I, but I know that they, I, I don't like to just give stories of deficit, uh, but also stories uh, and not to just say that we're all about, you know, resilience. Um, but, um, you know, there's still a lot of strength in every people. And, and my husband's um, grandfather as a, as a six nations chief, he, um, he and other chiefs from Ontario paid their own way to go to the very first United Nations uh, meeting in San Francisco after world war II. He was a young man. He, um, and, um, and they went and my mother-in-law told me that they got there to the Fairmont hotel in San Francisco where it was being held. And, and they tried to get admittance and they're like, they're like, who are you? We're the Iroquois nation. Uh, Iroquois is another term for Haudenosaunee and, um, they're the six nations. And, um, and they were like, well, we don't have any Iroquois here on the list. And then she claims that they then went back outside and they're like, what should we do? We spent all this money to get here from Ontario. And they decided to try again. So they went back in again, um, but this time, and this time they were admitted, but they were actually admitted as Iraqis. Yeah, seriously. And so um, this the once the most powerful nation in Indian nation, you know, and, um, and so into this day, you know, I, I in um, 2000, 2017, I got a grant to go to the United Nations um, because they were having the 10 year anniversary of the, of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And I went and interviewed a lot of tribal leaders. And I was talking to one of them. He was an Adawa leader. Uh, and he was telling me that when he was for like 15 years, when he was an elected, uh, you know, um, 
leader of his tribe. He was the chairman or, and um, he would not come to the UN because he could not come as a representative of his government. He could only come under the sort of sponsorship of an NGO. And, um, and he only wanted to attend as an actual leader of his nation. And, uh, and of course, the United States and Canada, they, they absolutely will not allow um, nation, um, you know, indigenous nations uh, to attend under their own uh, nationality, uh, sovereignty. And, um, and you see this also with the, you know, the, my husband's people, the Iroquois Confederacy, they issue their own passports as an, ex, you know, expression of their sovereignty. But um, when they try to compete every year in the lacrosse, the worldwide lacrosse, um, you know, uh, playoffs, or whatever, um, they have a hard time, they, because all the members of the Iroquois um, Nationals team all travel on Iroquois passports, right? And, um, and they have a, lot, a really hard time because the U.S. and Canada um, will try to prevent those nations from accepting their passports. And the, and the lacrosse is a game that is an Iroquois game. It's the, it's the creator's game. And so it's the sport comes from the Iroquois Confederacy. Yet another example of an attempt to erase an entire people. Um, we are way behind schedule, so let's take a quick break here. Um, on the other side of the break, we have a lot more to discuss. Hopefully we can squeeze it into just a few minutes, but uh, stick with us on the other side of the break. Go over to counterpunch.org. Get yourself a subscription to Counterpunch Plus. That is how you support our work and, of course, all of the great people that we like to support as well. So stick with us on the other side of the break. We'll be right back.
And we are back chatting with Jacqueline Keeler. Again, you should definitely get yourself a copy of the book. Oh dear, I dropped my notes. Here we go. I got them again. Uh, definitely get yourself uh, a copy of the book, Standoff, Standing Rock, The Bundy Movement, and the American Story of Sacred Lands. I uh, definitely don't ever want to get authors' uh, titles wrong, so I had to get my notes out for that one. And of course, J.F. Keeler on Twitter. Um, okay, uh, Jacqueline, I want to ask you a little bit about representation. We talked about it briefly in sort of the negative sense, uh, you know, representation um, in the sense of sort of a superficial kind of representation of a people. But now we are addressing something, I think, a little bit deeper, cultural representation of Native people making its way into the mainstream. Of course, uh, for those of the those of us who watch television and films, Reservation Dogs has uh, hit a lot of headlines recently as a um, uh, TV series. I think it's on Netflix, but that centers indigenous people and I believe is uh, produced by indigenous people and directed by indigenous people. But there are others, of course, there's uh, there's films coming out, uh, directors uh, from native tribes that are working in, I don't know if we could say Hollywood, but certainly breaking into the mainstream. So here's my question, uh, setting all of that up. Is this representation is this tokenism, or are we beginning to see something uh, more akin to a sense of agency in representing themselves for Native people? Are Native people beginning to be able to do that? Yeah, I don't know. I I, I often feel like it does sometimes become reductive tokenism, honestly. And and um, you know, I think um, uh, you know, it's sort of. Um, it's interesting because because uh, Canada has so much more money for the arts. So often we are represented by First Nations people, even though there's more Native people here in the U.S. than there are in Canada. You know, and um, so it, so you'll never see a, a Navajo person <laughs> anywhere, even though there's you know half a million Navajos in this country. You know, and we're mostly full full bloods. Most ninety percent of Navajos are full bloods. You'll never see them anywhere represented representing Native people. You'll see a Cree person from far north Canada instead and it's the same thing with reservation dogs like most of the cast is from canada you know and um so i i and people were like well the border doesn't matter but it does matter because we have a specific real political relationship both to the land and to our, our to our occupiers you know and it has it has a whole legal situation with indian federal law it's it, it's it's real and just like first nations people in canada have with the Canadian government and before that the British crown and um, it's just different you know any more than I go up there and represent myself as First Nations in Canada and speak for everyone there they would tell me to get lost if I did that <laughs> and so um, but I mean there are there are specificity to Native issues and also having even one person speak for all Native perspectives you know um, you know Oklahoma is kind of a unique place you know and even between the tribes there's a lot of differences you know um, you know, the Navajo Nation and the Cherokee Nation are about the same size, you know, uh, numerically, but they're very different. You know, I mean, I think the average blood quantum in the Cherokee Nation is very low. And that's a his those are historical reasons for that. And and um, but it's not to say that one is right and one is wrong, but they are also different, you know. So I think it's really so it does when I'm saying it does tend towards tokenism. And um, but it's lovely to have a series featuring uh, Native people. We have not had that. And um, I remember when I ran a youth program for Native students in Oakland, California. And um, 
and I remember I, I showed them, um, you know, they've had an account, they've had TV series featuring entire native casts, First Nations casts in Canada since the 90s, right? Since the early mid 90s. And, you know, taking some of those out and showing them to my students in Oakland, California. Um, and when I first started running this mentorship program, the students told me, they're all high school students, they told me that, um, that they were a minority amongst minorities in the Oakland school district. Like they would often be the only native student, you know, and, uh, and so it's just a margin further marginalization, even in a city that was Brown. Right. And, uh, and so, uh, but, and I showed them these, uh, these TV series that um, were being filmed in Canada and they were just shocked. They just had never seen themselves or anything close to represented the way the kind of representation in the media that Canadian, uh, that First Nations people have, we don't have here in the States. And we're, we're about, what, uh, almost 30 years behind, you know? And um, so it's, um, you know, in Canada, they have an, they have an Aboriginal People's Television Network. It's a network with hundreds of Native people full-time employed doing the news, right? TV, everything. We don't have anything like that here in the States, you know, yet we are a much larger population, and so, um, so yeah, so we are, um, we are marginalized, uh, even in these endeavors and, uh, and it's not enough to do tokenism. I think and this is where it's a structural problem. Um, you know, if, and I have a structural fix, I, I, um, I talk a lot about my idea of a first, um, a, um, an a federal indigenous government. I think that, um, we actually have to have our own separate government and nation that works kind of in partnership with the colonial government, right? Um, the, uh, um, I, I got this idea actually, um, um, I was taught, my husband's um, paternal grandmother was, is, was Finnish American. And she was telling us how when she grew up in Waukegan, Illinois, uh, even though, uh, you know, she didn't grow up in Finland and she spoke Finnish at home, her fam her father and his generation felt they needed to be able to write, read and write and finish. So she had to go to Finnish school um, after regular school. And, uh, and she said the reason why it was so important to his generation, um, you know, she came of age around World War One, was that, um, was that, uh, was that uh, in the 19th century, uh, the Finns um, had to, you know, they, they declared their independence from Sweden. Sweden was colonizing Finland uh, for like 150 years. And when, but when they wrote their, their declaration of independence, they had to write in Swedish because they weren't fluent in Finnish anymore. And um, because in the major cities, fin Finnish was sort of outlawed, right? And to get ahead, you had to learn Swedish. And uh, so for him, his, his generation was very important that they learn their language because the act of their political autonomy allowed them to reclaim their language. And it made me think about how when you are colonized, even if you're talking about Sweden colonizing Finland, and she had a saying in Finnish, which was that a Swede is a Swede, even if you boil them in oil. And they they had the same thing for the Russians, the Russians, Russian. So, but what what she but you know if you're colonized by other people, even if you're the I mean the Finns are like the most depigmented people on earth. They're like the whitest people on the planet. You know, even if you are the most depigmented person on the planet, you know everything about you is up for grabs. You know your language, your land your wealth, your children, everything is up for grabs, right? It's all takeable, right? And so, so the, it made me realize, and you know, in Ireland as well, you know, they have not been able to reclaim Gaelic. Their, their occupation by England was much longer than the 150 years that, that Finland endured with Sweden. And, um, and of course, you know, with the potato famine, millions died, 
you know, and uh, so their lands, their 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 lands and their um, their lives were forfeit under colonization. So it made me realize that political autonomy is really important. You know, good fences make good neighbors. So I think for us to really reclaim a lot of this stuff, we are going to have to be a separate nation, and and that would entail. Um, and and this is a direct. Um, I think a lot of, and I go into this in some depth and in the book about the issue of the doctrine of discovery and the the origin of the title that the U.S. claims to our lands comes from this doctrine of discovery, which was first articulated by um, one of the first chief justices of the United States, John Marshall, and he did a he did three really uh, crucial rulings in the 1820s and 1830s called the Marshall Trilogy, which are the basis of Indian federal law in this country, which apply to all citizens of federally recognized tribes, right? And um, and his ruling was that he had a case where he had two men, right? And um, and basically he these two men, both non-native, um, had title to the same plot of land, right? And this was like in the Northwest Territories, right after they were after the Revolutionary War opened them up to um, to occupation, and um, and so and um, one of the men had gotten title uh, from the tribe. The other man had gotten title, uh, Macintosh, had gotten title from the state, right? And he had to decide which title was actually valid. And uh, and he then called upon uh, Vatican law because he's the chief justice of a brand new country, not a lot of case law to draw upon. So he was sort of drawing from all over the world. And, uh, and so looking at Vatican law, there were a couple of papal bulls, one I think in 1492 and one in 1550, in which the popes articulated two different popes had articulated the sort of idea, which is that um, that only Christian discovering European countries had title. The minute they landed on our shores, they would land like at the you know um, the mouth of a river, and uh, were open to the ocean. They would claim the entire watershed, right? They plant their flag, you know, I don't know, put their you know on a tree, stick, you know, and they read out an announcement. And at that moment all of the land title, the fee simple title would then revert to their monarch in Europe. And, uh, and that indigenous people do not have title. This is actual law in the United States, active law. That all we possess is the title of animals, of, of use and occupancy. That's all we have. And, and so this was cited as recently as 2005 in a case, and, uh, and it was actually Ruth Bader Ginsburg who wrote the decision and cited this law. Um, in uh, the city of Cheryl, New York versus the United Nation of New York. And the city of Cheryl had kind of created this bogus sort of um, rental agreement with the tribe back in the 1890s and like a 99 year agreement. We'll pay you $1 and do this little ceremony and we get to have the land, we get to rent the land. Well, they kind of didn't think the tribe would still be around in 99 years. And it was in the 1990s. And suddenly they thought that the, the title to their entire city was clouded. Right. So they took it to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ruled against the tribe because tribes cannot possess title under the doctrine of discovery because we only have the title that animals possess, the, 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 not title, but use, the, the right to the use of the land and occupancy. And um, so this denies our humanity at a fundamental level. And it's the basis of all title in the country. Right. Uh, paired with military occupation. Right. So. Um, it's um and some treaties that do um, give up land but um but yeah it's uh 
it's a really ugly history. And I think most Americans don't understand that this is the basis and that, that fundamentally Native nations actual humanity are denied. We might disagree with Pakistan, but we don't deny that they can have a title to their land, you know, but for Native Americans, we do. Native nations, we do. And this is because the Native nations claim is, is such, um, it so undermines that of the colonial state. And, and that's why our political existence is the most dangerous aspect about us, right, um, is our political reality. And so the more politically real we are, the more dangerous we are. I would love to ask about a dozen follow-ups to that really important um, information, but in the interest of time, I'm just going to run through a couple of last questions here. Uh, speaking of the, as you as you were mentioning in the example of uh, Finnish or Ireland, um, you know this 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 question of the loss of language, which is really part of a broader issue of sort of this the, the loss of knowledge, knowledge that would normally be passed down from one generation to the next, that is then lost is is essentially lost forever. This, of course, really. Um, I think comes to the fore when we're thinking about right now, when we're thinking about COVID. So can you talk a little bit about the impact of COVID uh, on Native people? I know that, uh, you know, there have been many stories that have been written in the last two years about the devastating impacts, especially early on. Um, where does, can you talk a little bit about the impact, how this impacts cultural knowledge and collective memory and all of these aspects that are so critical to preserving uh, a semblance of sort of cultural uh, sovereignty. Yeah. So um, through the pandemic, um, the first um, year or so of the pandemic, I did a podcast um, I think almost three times a week sometimes where um, it was about the COVID response in Indian country. And, uh, and so we dealt with a lot of issues on YouTube. They have a video of um, the episode we did about, um, which is really interesting, um, in South Dakota on the Cheyenne River Sea Reservation, which is very close to Standing Rock. It's actually adjacent to Standing Rock. Um, the um, the tribe was doing um, uh, COVID checkpoints before people could enter the reservation, right? And you know, South Dakota did not take the pandemic very seriously. One of the things we noticed uh, during the pandemic was that the tribes in these red states were the only ones taking the pandemic seriously to protect, you know, their culture bearers, to protect their elders and their population, which were so vulnerable because of a lot of, um, uh, you know, uh, contingent medical contingencies and stuff people had. And um, and so and also just um, sometimes a lack of I mean, on the Navajo Nation, uh, where my, my family, my mother's family are from, uh, you have like 30 percent of the people don't have running water. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, my, my, my grandparents only got running water in the 21st century, you know? And uh, so, you know, keeping up with the whole hand cleaning, washing stuff was really difficult. Um, but, you know, the Navajo Nation and, and the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe and many tribes, they really held the uh, quarantine. They, they really were, I mean, you know, we we're such a poor people, but, um, but they really took it seriously and people acted on the best, ben they, they, they acted for the benefit of all the people, you know, and it was really impressive. I mean, it was actually quite moving to see the level of mutual aid happening on the reservations, um, the way that everyone came together for each other. And we covered a lot of that and did a number of episodes on mutual aid, which is a really a call back to our traditional way of doing things. Um, and because we didn't have, I mean, the Navajo Nation, we didn't have, um, we didn't have autocratic governments. We didn't even really have government. Uh, we were pretty, I think, 
I, I feature uh, one of my friends, Clee Benali. He's a Navajo anarchist, right? Our anarchist in, in Flagstaff from um, Pinon on the Navajo Nation. And, uh, and, um, and you know, he, he feels that anarchy, uh, not the sort of European style anarchy, but this, there's a Navajo form of anarchy that is actually sort of our original way of doing things. And, and that really came to the fore again, the sort of mutual aid, doing things for each other. Um, really, it was very impressive. I, I, you know, I featured a lot of folks who were working on that, including um, Ethel Branch, the former attorney general of the Navajo Nation. She led a, an amazing mutual aid effort uh, uh, that became really successful, uh, you know, the Navajo Hopi elders relief. And, you know, her husband is Hopi, so they helped all the elders out there and people. And uh, but with uh, with what happened at Cheyenne River, uh, you know, the um, the chairman, you know, he um, they, they institute checkpoints and um, and governor, um, uh, the governor of South Dakota, you know, she's a huge Trump supporter, far right Republican. And um, and she really um, she tried to force the tribe to take their checkpoints down. And there was a huge standoff over that. And so we covered that. We had um, the chairman of the tribe on. We had uh, um, uh, Lakota um uh, a friend of mine, she's Lakota and Navajo, like me, uh, and she is a state legislator um, there, uh, Red Dawn Foster, and all these, we had all these amazing guests talking to the issue, and um, and so you can see that on YouTube, but it's, uh, it's um, yeah, I think it was, I think the, for us, for the pandemic, there is a lot of tragedy, people have lost a lot of relative, I mean, but I mean, the, we held the line, and we defined ourselves as a people, um, each nation, um, by that action. And we, we do it often in total defiance of the red states that we live in, right. That our nations are surrounded by. And, um, and so it's, um, it was, I think, I think, uh, it's, it's still ongoing. It's just terrible to see, you know, the Navajo nation going through another wave, um, uh, with the Omicron virus and after they've held the line so strong and for so long now. Um, but I think that it, it I think for the generation that experienced that, I think it's going to define them in a way because they've got a chance to express their um who they are and how they are different and how this reflects on their their own cultural respective cultural traditions as a people and so i think it was in that sense it was incredibly empowering and and i I don't want that i mean often i think in white media they tend to give very deficit uh, focused reporting and it's important to report on those issues but the fuller picture they sometimes miss because they don't understand what it is to be native. Right. And, um, and often a lot of people who they quote and stuff are people who are not even native, they're pretendians or something. They, 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 they live on a sort of trauma diet and get money that way. And, and so they don't present our issues in a more comprehensive way or an empowering way, you know, giving us agency, right. We have agency and it's very important that young native people understand how our people have have expressed agency over the years because that gives them a clue that they could do it rather than simply telling them that you know native people rolled over and died you know that what does that tell young people and i just know as a young person i'm not a young person now but when i was a young native person you know the stories in my family that i heard that showed me how my family resisted um were like they were like little snippets of things that i just ate up and i just i kept them close to my heart and, uh, and they gave me strength. And, and that's the sort of oral history that you don't read in books, but you learn from your own family. And so in this case, young people on the reservations got to see that in real life and they got to express that. And a lot of young Navajos, you know, they stayed home with their family and rather than going to school. And, and there's a lot of, you know, um, 
uh, re-energizing uh, energy given to um, planting traditional crops again. You know, my mom's hometown in Cameron, her cousin May Franklin, and and other folks in Cameron, they brought they they brought back the community farm. You can go now and see they put up hoop, um, you know, uh, greenhouses. I mean, it's just so much has happened. I mean, I think that's that's a big to me. I don't know. That's my part of the story. Obviously, there's been a lot of coverage of the negative things, and I I recognize that, but. I don't know. To that point, and I hate to uh, harp on another negative thing, but I think it's a critical issue that does have to be discussed, that that the struggle uh, that Native people have been waging is not just one against pipelines, it's one against extractivism broadly. And one of those issues is mining. Uh, one of the one of the key ones, Oak Flat, that was uh, the Trump administration wanted to move in there as quickly as possible, mine it, strip mine it, you know, uh, do all of that. But there's more to it than that, because it's not just Trump and Republicans, it's also Democrats, and it's it's pretty much everybody in the ruling class. But even more than that, there is also this looming question of a kind of environmentally friendly eco-green extractivism, whether it's pulling lithium out of the ground or various other forms of sort of, uh, you know, green tinted uh, kind of development. So I just wanted to give you a couple of minutes to speak about this issue and especially uh, the forms of resistance that Native people have been using to kind of push back against not just pipelines, but uh, mining and extractivism broadly. Yeah, it's um, yeah. When you're talking about uh, oak flat, you're talking about copper mining, and there's a huge um, shortage of copper in this country. And that actually was uh, not started by the Trump administration, but by Senator McCain and I think Senator Kyle. I mean, these are Republican senators that were from Arizona, and um, and uh, in his later years, uh, McCain did a lot of really um, sort of shifty things um, against Native people in the state. That and also trying to take the water. Uh, that was another thing that he. Um, um, and he got chased out of the Navajo Nation for that. There's video on, you can see, of, of Navajo, young Navajo activists, you know, uh, chasing him out, out of the, uh, out of Window Rock, our capital. And, um, but, uh, and, uh, and then, of course, with lithium, um, you know, that, of course, is necessary, uh, you know, for, you know, all of these sorts of um, technology and, uh, and, you know, solar panels and things like that. It's just uh, quite um uh, th there's going to be, you know, this extractive cost to Indian country that um, I'm actually, um, I just signed a contract to do a book, um, a book contract um, with Tory House Press to work on a, a book about uranium mining in Indian country. And um, it's called, uh, it's titled um, Letters to Oppenheimer from the Fourth World. And, uh, and I, I, you know, I have a personal connection to that. Um, I grew up, uh, my father was an engineer and, and he worked at Hanford, the nuclear reservation. So I grew up in Richland, Washington. And then my grandfather, my Navajo grandfather was a uranium miner. Uh, and there are around Cameron where my mom grew up, there are over 200 abandoned uranium mines. And, um, and that sort of hangs over the Navajo Nation, right? The Navajo Nation is the size of Ireland. It has the population of Iceland. It's larger than 22 member states in the UN. Um, you know, uh, about 170,000 speak the language fluently. Uh, it, it's got the parameters of a country. Well, we don't even know it exists. I mean, you know, it's like as if Iceland exists in the United, middle of the United States, no one knew it was there, right? And um, so, uh, but there are over 500 abandoned uranium mines on the Navajo Nation, probably more, but that's the um, normal number that's decided. And, uh, 
And for a long time, most of them were uh, not, um, not had never been, there was no remediation done. And that's been a process, very slow process. And yet in the midst of all this, and of course the issue of Yucca Mountain and, uh, and that is sort of a, a national um, storage area for uranium waste in this country. And of course that's been fought by the Dan sisters and, um, and, and the Shoshone tribe. And I should say my, my cousin, um, Nolan married into that family, the Dan family. So um, I have a personal connection to that family. And, uh, but, um, but they, uh, us Indians were all related somehow, you know, and, uh, but, I think, uh, and then of course you see in Biden's 30 by 30 plan, you know, uh, this reliance on nuclear power to uh, to basically um, meet the, you know, the reduction in carbon, you know, and, uh, you know, goals that we have right now. And um, and so bringing back nuclear power. And, you know, we had, um, I wrote a piece uh, that was in um, uh, um, High Country News and republished in Mother Jones and was featured on um, um, uh Full frontal with Samantha B, which was about uh, when when Trump reduced the Bears Ears National Monument, um, you know, he reduced it by eighty five percent. I looked into sort of um, sort of what was some of the sort of things behind it, and I I noticed that the uh, state of Utah, the legislature, had submitted a forty page comment during the comment period, uh, and um, and basically saying that um, their main point was that the um, the national monument. Um, would be a, would damage Utah's uranium industry, and um, on either side of the Bears Ears National Monument, one side near um, White Mesa, which is a uh, Ute Mountain Ute community, uh, there is the I think the only um, uranium um, mill <laughs> in the country, and it's very badly managed. And um, and then on the other side is the uh, uranium mine that they bring the the um, uh, the, the or two. And, um, and so it's, um, so that was sort of, and, and I looked into it in that company, Energy Fuels, um, played a huge role in reducing the monument, right? And um, so I wrote an article about it. And uh, I think I titled it, and they actually kept this title with something like, Trump says, you know, let them eat yellow cake or something like that. And, and, um, and, I, and, and the CEO of Energy Fuels, he put a letter on their website denouncing me. <laughs> but then the New York Times did further reporting. Um, I think I published that in December of 2017. And then the New York Times did more reporting in January and February of 2018. They did a bunch of FOIA requests. And they found that it was accurate that the energy fuels played a huge role in reducing the size of the monument. And, um, and, and the uranium was a driving issue behind it. And uh, ironically, uh, recently, um, uh, bipartisan, um, with bipartisan support, uh, Energy Fuels got, got $75 million from Congress, right? In a, in a bill led by um, Senator Heinrich, Martin Heinrich from uh, Democrat from New Mexico, right? And you know, he's always out there against fracking and Chaco Canyon and stuff. He co-sponsored co this bill. And I, this was brought to my attention by uh, Native leaders who were upset that no money has been allocated for the co-management of Bears Ears by tribes and the federal government. Um, and so that still has not arrived yet. Yet Energy Fuels, the company responsible for the uh, temporary reduction of the monument, uh, the monument has been restored under Biden, um, you know, they have received $75 million dollars. And uh, so it's, so yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, I'm very concerned about that. And so uh, my book will um, really take a look at um, many different areas in any country that have been basically sacrifice zones to the uranium industry 
and um, like Hanford, like my mom's hometown of Cameron, um, and um, other areas like around the Black Hills and, and you know, um, San Onofre on the coast there um, in California, um, and also um, Prairie Island um, in Minnesota. You know, there's a Dakota, a tiny Dakota reservation there. Uh, like it's small, it's like barely a mile wide. And in the middle of it is a nuclear power plant. <laughs> and so I'm gonna uh, look at all of those different things. So. Well, I guess it's uh, incumbent upon me uh, as a member of the Counterpunch crew to point out that our managing editor, Joshua Frank, is finishing up his book about Hanford. So that should be out from Haymarket, I think, in the coming months. So uh, a lot to discuss about that. And I think also just a message to any of the leftists and socialists and others who want to get on their high horse about nuclear power and the importance of the nuclear uh, power to mitigate climate change. I think we should really consider all of these other impacts, as you were just pointing out because it's not just about energy and climate change. It's also about many, many, many human beings and ecosystems and a whole lot more. Um, I have like a dozen more questions that I would love to ask you, but I've kept you probably 30 minutes longer than I said I was going to. So I think we have to leave it there. Um, Jacqueline Keeler has been with me today. Uh, get Again, the book's so critical that you have to get yourselves a copy. Of course, Standoff, Standing Rock, The Bundy Movement, and The American Story of Sacred Lands. That is a must read get it for christmas get it for your friends your family uh and you know anybody else who needs to have that information follow uh, jacqueline on twitter that's at jf keeler jackie thanks so much for chatting with us today really appreciate it thanks for having me Listeners, viewers, thank you again for your continued support. If you're listening to the free podcast, go get yourself that Counterpunch Plus subscription. Jackie, thank you again. Listeners, we will chat again next week.